This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. Everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Sherman Show. We are recording this today on March fifteenth, two thousand twenty-two, and I am here with my co-host Sam Lau. Hey, hey! And today we have a very unique guest. Her name is Ellen Carr. She's a high yield portfolio manager and principal at Barksdale Investment Management. Uh, welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. And, you know, um, you know, a lot of people maybe aren't familiar with you or Barksdale, but it's a majority woman-owned boutique uh, institutional investment management firm. You're out of Nashville. Uh, I think uh, we saw that you uh, reside in Asheville as well, uh, too, where uh, we visited one of our colleagues to have a wedding there uh, one day. But uh, in addition to your job as a PM, you're an adjunct professor of finance at Columbia um, and you teach courses on credit, not shockingly being a high yield person, but more importantly, you're also a writer. And, you know, we stumbled across your work, um, not just uh, on your contributions, what we see out there in the financial media, but also you co-authored a book about women in investment management. And the title of that book is Undiversified, the Big Gender Short in Investment Management. And we just thought that this was a great topic to really talk about. We're always talking about, you know, diversity, inclusion. It seems to be very topical. And so um, maybe you can start up on how, oh, look at even Sam. He's, Sam's even putting up a copy of the book. Uh, so talk, Sam, so the Zoom picks you up. Hello? Check out the book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how the Zoom camera works, so we got to make sure we get that right. Um, but can you tell us what was the, gener- the genesis of this collaboration with Katrina Dudley on the book on undiversified. Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me. And I think because it is germane to the book, I should point out that our introduction came through a female portfolio manager at Double Line, Monica Erickson. So there are women who do what we do. Um, so the, the, the genesis of the book on my side primarily came from my experience as an adjunct at Columbia. I've been teaching there for almost a decade now. And I noticed that even though Columbia's student body is getting creeping towards parity from a gender perspective, the people who took my class were much more male skewed. Um, The headline number that we cite in the book is that only 10% of portfolio managers are female. And what I found is that coincidentally, only about 10% of the students in my classes, which tend to be pretty investing oriented since that's what I do. It's literally the only thing I'm capable of teaching to anyone. Um, only about 10% of the uh, students in my class were female. And several of the adjuncts and I made this observation year after year and sort of scratched our heads and said, why is that? This is a great career. Um, From a work-life balance perspective, it's actually not as challenging as some of the other careers that women choose in droves. So look at investment banking, for example better diversity metrics. I have yet to meet an investment banker who doesn't work more hours in their early years than I'm actually awake. So much better balance in, you know, the the sort of hierarchy of finance jobs. 
um, and a really great career for a lot of different reasons. So I reconnected with Katrina right after I had coincidentally met a Columbia Press uh, representative who said that he was looking for books from the adjunct faculty. And we started talking about a book and one thing led to another. Um, and we decided to write a book together. And thank God we did because Katrina is the yin to my yang. She says yang because she's Australian. Um, but we absolutely complemented each other very well. We are good at different things. I'm one of those people that if I can say it in three pages rather than a sentence, I will. Katrina's a great editor. She kept me on task. Um, and I'd like to think that I breathed a little poetry into the book at times. Um, so it was a collaboration and a labor of love that really came from the experience that we both had of being, you know, in the classroom in my case, and then in both of our cases, the one woman in a sea of Patagonia Brovest at, at whatever conference we were attending. <laughs> the Patagonia Brovest. Um, it's a thing. You know, yeah, it is a thing. It's it's the bane of our attire. You can see here, we like our double line uh, polos, but yeah, we, we just don't understand the vest being out here on the West Coast. I guess it's because we're not situated in San Francisco. But, um, you know, it's very interesting. You talk about that, too, uh, about just this kind of 10 percent is in the industry. You, you notice that parallel in the classroom. So maybe you can tell us about how you got started in the business. How, how did you, um, you know, get into investment management? What what drove you to, to see these things? And, you know, um, how do you try to impart that on some of your students at, at Columbia? This is one of the themes of the book, Jeff. So I knew very little about investment management when I graduated from Kellogg a gajillion years ago. I'm way older than I look, by the way, um, and decided to pursue this career path. So I went to business school with a consulting background, and I was a career changer. And the only thing I knew for sure, and this is going to sound awful, but I will say it, is that I wanted a lucrative career. Um, and so I spent my summer on the sell side at Morgan Stanley doing a sales trading research rotation, decided that the sell side was not for me for a lot of reasons, but really got hooked on the research component. What I worked on there in my summer was a lot of fun. Um, so I ended up pivoting to the buy side for my uh, full-time job. I thought, you know, this may be super quantitative and it may be something where I'm stuck behind an Excel spreadsheet, but I'm going to give it a try. Happily, I went to work for one of your neighbors, Capital Group, and Capital is a place uh, where you're really encouraged to be creative and unique and differentiated in your thinking. Um, it takes a very long-term approach to investing. I ended up in high yield because that was, you know, to me, the perfect blend of equities and fixed income. You get to think about both sides. And I spent, uh, you know, the, the ensuing, I guess, 12 or so years there really building my own framework for credit research and then transitioning from an analyst to a portfolio manager, which is a pretty typical transition and something we talk about in the book as being a stumbling block for women in particular, um, for reasons we might talk about later. What I have always loved about the career is that it is intellectually demanding. It is not a career full of numbers. So there are quantitative approaches to investing that, for example, highly quantitative funds like dimensional or um, quant shops would use, but that is by no means the only way to generate alpha. And in my almost 25 years in the business, I've learned that there are probably a lot more ways not to generate alpha than to generate alpha. However, many of the approaches that the best investors use, whether on the credit side or on the equity side, 
are very fundamentally, um, what's the word, narrative, analytical. Um, I like to say that the most important lessons that I learned as an investor were actually not at business school, but in getting a degree in literature as an undergraduate, because that's where I learned to analyze texts. And when I read the 10K of a company, that's the approach that I take. So I'm looking at the text that management has provided for investors. Um, I get really nervous when I see poetry. I like to see prose. You keep an eye on the company over long periods of time to make sure that they're actually doing what they say they're going to do. And by the way, and, and y'all know this because you are, in fact, fixed income investors, we don't have the levers that, that shareholders have, right? So once the ink has dried on the bond indenture that we just purchased a, you know, after exactly 15 minutes of research, our leverage is gone, no pun intended. So as a result, you really have to be sharp on getting that background on a company and making sure that management is doing, especially with respect to the balance sheet, what management said it was going to do. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that too, because I, I think your pun was intended given all your pros and, and your background in literature. I, I find that very fascinating as well, because we talk to a lot of investors out there that you know they can be quantitative. So that's kind of a lot of stuff we do. Um, I think there's a lot of psychological elements, too, where you're trying to see the psychology of markets and things. But I don't think I've ever really stumbled on someone who actually thought there was beauty in the literature of the indenture. And so I, I find that uh, very interesting. But it makes sense, too, because when you're trying to cover something up, right, or you're trying to make that flowery language, it's probably not as substantive as it can be. But, you know, when you talk about this introduction of, let's say, women into the financial roles, you said there's a stumbling block. You mentioned that too. Why do you think that 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 stumbling block exists, and how do you advise people to try to help overcome that? So we, in the book, we break down the solutions um, into basically three three components. So early part, early stage of the pipeline, and here we talk about the undergraduates and the MBAs, and then the investment management firms themselves and what they can do um, for women as they go through that pipeline. And then at the end of the book, we actually issue a call to arms for everybody who is part of the financial infrastructure. And we call that everyone who's got a 401k or an IRA. And we challenge them to you know, ask the question, who manages my money? But if you start at the very entry level of the pipeline and even go back further than undergraduates, um, we know that parents, based on a study, Parents talk to sons and daughters in the same family differently about money. So parents are more likely to talk to daughters about things like saving and budgeting. Parents are more likely to talk to their sons, on the other hand, about investing and taking risk. So some of these attitudes that investing is the purview of men can happen at very young ages. As you go through then and get to the undergrad level, we found, based on a study that um, we partnered with a Rutgers professor to do of undergraduates in the United States, that there are lots of um, blocks from the perspective of perception. So our industry has an image problem. Many young women, many young people, but in particular young women, think of investing based on what they see in the popular media. So this might be movies like The Big Short, where um, I'm sure you've never seen it, but in case you haven't, um, there's lots of really awful scenes, including one where they're basically doing research in a strip club. So that's, I can tell you, I've never done research in a strip club, not part of the job. 
Um, then if you look at movies like The Wolf of Wall Street, which by the way is about the sell side, but because there's so little um, exposure to the career path of investment management, a lot of young women don't know the difference between, you know, that's those sort of boiler room type movies and what they would actually be doing um, if they went to work in investment management. And they don't get exposure to women who do the job or really anyone who does the job. So then when you get to the MBA level, it's a different set of issues. So women who matriculate into MBA programs often consider investment management as a career path. But because of the cadence of the recruiting cycle, they may feel like they're behind even if they start looking at these jobs you know, the first day that they set foot on Columbia's campus as a first year. The reason for that is because unlike jobs like doctor, where you're expected to complete your degree and then do your job, in investment management, lots of the big firms, I don't know if Double Line is like this, require their hires to do a pitch. So usually this is a stock pitch. Usually students spend, um, based on a study we did, about 60 hours developing the stock pitch in their first year. That might be without any background in finance because they're doing their coursework at the same time. And as a result, a lot of women lack the confidence to put themselves forward for those plum investment management jobs. And so they may decide, you know what? The investment banking job is a sure thing. There's a gajillion investment banking jobs. I know that I'll do well in this interview process. I don't have to do a stock pitch. It's the safer route. Um, so that can be a real impediment to women going into the industry. And so, then finally, oh, sorry. No, yeah. no, no, go ahead. Give me the finally. Well, the finally is once you get into the realm of investment management firms and looking at why women um, sometimes don't stay once they've started there, we talk about equalizing the three Ps. So here we're talking about pay, performance evaluation, and promotion cadence. And we found a whole lot of off-the-shelf third-party research that says that there are ways to address these issues. But first, as a firm, you have to understand your data. So we're great at data, right? That's what we do. We look at companies. We know everything about the companies in our portfolios. We know everything about the way that our portfolios are laid out. But sometimes we're like the um, the, the cobbler's children with, with no shoes when it comes to analyzing ourselves and looking at our own data for these issues of pay, um, pay equity, promotional equity, and then performance evaluation. Yeah, you mentioned that too. Uh, sometimes our own personal trading accounts uh, are, are highly neglected. You know that the whole cobbler's uh, children has no shoes. Um, but you know, you use the phrase like in, in describing it's like barriers to advancement, and I think that's essentially what you're describing here is that there's just these challenges within a lot of uh, the firms within the industry. But you also use another phrase that Sam really liked that was called widening the on ramp. Explain that phrase and what you mean by that and how you think that can help facilitate some of this transition. So we talk about widening the on-ramp at the undergrad and at the MBA level. So at the undergrad level, there are lots of great organizations, but lots is a strong word, but there are several organizations that are working very hard to help undergraduates, young female undergraduates, understand the career options that are available to them and give them the types of skills that they need to go through the interview process. Um, we actually, I should have said this right away, we've donated um, all the royalties, and I'm sure they're huge, uh, from our book to an organization called Rock the Street Wall Street, which actually starts at the high school level. And I don't, does Double Line have a partnership with Rock the Street Wall Street? I'm not sure. 
I don't believe so. Um, we have actually sponsored a couple of uh, scholarships too at, at like Dartmouth and the local colleges here too for women in finance uh, in memory of one of our former PMs who passed away. Uh, she was a big advocate of, of Bonnie. women in finance. Bonnie, Bonnie Baja, yes, correct. And so She uh, guest lectured for my class at Columbia. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah she's a, she was a great woman. Yes, de definitely. She was. Yeah. Um, so yes, Rockwell Street, Wall Street starts at the high school level and exposes um, high school girls to women in finance. And it's not just investment management. I mean, it, it could be everything from a financial advisor to a portfolio manager to an economist uh, and gives them you know, some really um, practical training in investing. So as opposed to what most people think of as financial literacy in high school, which tends to take, again, the form of like budgeting and checkbook balancing, all of which is great. Rock the Street, Wall Street actually teaches young people, young women about investing. So then at the college level, there are organizations like Girls Who Invest who help girls get internships at firms like DoubleLine, um, which then can be um, can lead into to full time career opportunities for them. And again, this is a matter of exposure. So widening the on ramp to us just means exposing women to the career debunking some of the common myths about the career, in particular, this image issue and the work-life balance issue where people think you have to work you know, 100 hours a week if you're going to be a good investment analyst or portfolio manager, and um, showing them that there are other women who do the job and that there are lots of different models for that. In our Constellation chapter, we talk about the successful female analysts and portfolio managers who we interviewed. And we try to create a bunch of different prototypes so that people know that there's not just one role, uh, one way. One of the jokes when I started at Capital was that all the successful women at Capital, it wasn't really a joke, it was kind of true, um, had husbands who stayed home. So that could be very off-putting, right? If you think that this job requires you to find that unicorn husband who will stay home with your children, um, either that or be single. And in the book, we make sure that we show that there's a diaspora of, of women who are successful doing, uh, doing what we do and lots of different family archetypes and structures. Um, and then at the MBA level, when we talk about widening the on-ramp, we really challenge investment firms like DoubleLine to um, make sure that they are casting a wide and fair net in their recruiting practices. One of the... Um, the stories that we hear over and over again is that in the recruiting process, there's a lot of lionization of actual investment experience. So I think this is actually like a true story. It's not an urban myth, but you've got the earnest young man who comes in and talks about the fact that when he was seven years old, he asked his dad for a brokerage account because he wanted to buy Starbucks stock because he had figured out a good thing because his mom could not walk past the Starbucks without getting her triple grande skinny latte, whatever it is. Um, there's so many assumptions in that, right? So you've got to have investable wealth. You've got to have parents who understand brokerage accounts. We go back to the, you know, the question of whether the son had heard something different about investing, had been encouraged to invest the way that his, his sister perhaps had not. Um, so there's a whole socioeconomic thing there. What we would challenge investment firms to do is to routinize the interview process and make sure that it's not that it's not um, unfairly advantaging a certain demographic of people who may have had access to this lingo of investing that other types of, of candidates did not. So 
one of the things that uh, I liked, it was actually in the synopsis as well, is just talking about some of these subtle barriers that uh, I think we're discussing now. But there's also, up to this point, this, the discussion is largely focused on entering the field, promoting interest, developing that interest, um, perhaps widening that on-ramp, getting uh, from either undergrad and MBA. But getting in the door is one thing. Staying there, thinking about paths for career advancement. And if I recall correctly, that 10% or so in investment management pertains strictly, especially to portfolio management roles. So it's, there's this, which I would say probably implies that there's either an attrition rate there or just certain individuals aren't making it to those decision-making roles. And, and that's an important part of any career, right? Especially people that seek out professions in investment management. They tend to be a little bit more go-getters, alpha and want that career, see that uh, that career investment. So if you can just talk a little bit about barriers there, subtle or not, the importance of you know, really retaining and promoting uh, the, within these organizations. Yeah, alpha, no pun intended, right? Yeah, like you said, uh-huh. sometimes it's about not getting alpha too, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm real, I know a lot of ways not to generate alpha. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's a great question. and. I, I don't know if this is a, an actual term or not, but we use it in the book. We call these psychocultural barriers, which prevent women once they're in the door of these investment management firms from really evolving into the portfolio managers that um, you know they probably started out wanting to become. And there's no great analog for portfolio managers at other types of corporations, right? So in the book, we kind of liken it to the role of a partner at a law firm or at a big four, however many there are now, accounting firm or something like that. So we really sort of give portfolio managers the status of this this management team because they are the ones who the analysts really are feeding ideas to and are making the final decisions about the portfolio. So the data that we have says that 14% of investment analysts are female. This is data from the CFA. So already you're looking at a promotion um, issue with women versus men. Only 10% of portfolio managers are women. So that means that women are not being promoted if you consider it a promotion, which many people do, from the role of analyst portfolio manager. Why is that? We talk a lot in the book about the role of confidence in our industry. and it's really interesting. I saw an old friend who um, was a college roommate. She went to HBS, graduated the same year I graduated from Kellogg with her MBA. She ended up doing something completely different, but we were talking about investment management. And she said something I've never heard anybody say, but that we talk about in the book. She said, well, I took a finance course. And the minute that I heard that markets are efficient and that there's really no good way to beat them, I decided that that wasn't a career path for me. So definitionally, becoming a professional investor means putting a stake in the ground and saying with confidence, I can beat the market, even though I just paid $100,000 for my MBA that tells me I can't beat the market. (laughs) Women are at a structural deficit when it comes to confidence. There's a great book called The Confidence Code. You don't even have to read the book. You can read the Atlantic article that the two authors wrote that that distills the, the points of the book. But here they reference things like the um, the classic HBS study that says that 
men will apply for a job if they think they've got 60% of the criteria versus women feeling like they have to have all of the criteria that are listed in the job description. Um, that is, you know, just one of many examples that the authors cite of the ways in which men um, excel in the area of confidence. This industry, to a fault, lionizes confidence. So I think about my early days at Capital. And by the way, I think Capital is an amazing investment firm. It's got, you know, terrific numbers. It's one of the few firms that consistently outperforms the benchmark net of risk, or sorry, net of fees. However, even at Capital, there was this concept of the high conviction idea. So portfolio managers would tell analysts, we only want your high conviction ideas. If you go back to the efficient markets hypothesis, and of course, you know, you can take issue with that. That says, you know, you've got to give me all these great ideas that say that you're smarter than the market and you figured out a huge valuation discrepancy. And the thing is, nine times out of 10, it's it's you probably haven't. Right. So either the market is right or you didn't do enough homework to realize some of the downside risk and what you were looking at. Um, and again, I think this confidence barrier to women is one of the reasons that they have a hard time making that transition from analyst to portfolio manager. Because in addition to having to have confidence about your portfolio being able to beat the market, you also have to have confidence that you're good at a job that you haven't done yet. So unlike becoming a partner at a law firm, you're already a lawyer, right? You've got your law degree and you are jumping through the hoops that you need, the billable hours that you need to have to get to that partner level. In investment management, that promotion from analyst to portfolio manager is much more fuzzy. It's hard to say whether if you're a good analyst, you'll be a good portfolio manager. And for women, sometimes it's easier just to put our heads down and say, I know I'm good at my job. I know I'm good as an analyst. I don't want to take the risk of raising my hand and promoting myself into a new role that I don't know that I'll be as good at. Yeah, you know, I've heard that too before too. It's just having that difference in the confidence level. And, you know, as we think about it from like a hiring perspective too, um, you get a lot of pushback from, from people um, who are trying to, you know, achieve this diversity and say, well, what I'm really looking for is a meritocracy. It's the best candidate that comes through, right? And we know that's a big fallacy there. And you know, or I don't see enough of candidates out there. Uh, so how am I supposed to hire someone? And, you know, we've seen that at times, too, that there's certain demographics that are probably underrepresented relative to the population um, at, at, on our staff. Right. And we look at these kind of metrics and we ask ourselves, how do we find these candidates? So what do you recommend to people who are out there trying to, you know, think about um, having a more diverse set of employees? Right female, um, ethnicity, race, whatever that may be. Um, and talk about some of the fallacies in thinking about this meritocracy component. And then further, how does one try to improve upon that? So I'll, I'll start with the meritocracy component first, because that's the easiest thing. So the big fallacy, sort of the, the, the overarching theme of our book, my aha moment was, in an industry that claims to be a meritocracy, how is it that we have failed to deliver returns in excess of a benchmark net of fees, right? So the whole meritocracy thing at an industry level, and I'm not talking about Dublin, and I'm not talking about my firm or capital, you know, we're all like well beyond better than average. But the bottom line is we know that active management has not delivered what it said it was going to do. 
So I, I just love the Lake Wobegon reference. I have to always just point that out. I, I so many people use it. I love it. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> Me too. My dad was a big uh, PHC fan. Um, so if you take that on the one hand, and then you say, well, this industry is a meritocracy. Um, so, you know, it, it just is what it is, right? Like people come and they do well and they beat their benchmark and that's how they get compensated. Well, we, we sort of know that that's definitionally false. Um, that goes back to something Sam asked about, which was this concept of the, the subtle psychocultural barriers. And one of the conclusions that we had in writing the book was our enemy or the, the barrier to change in our book is not really these kind of Me Too, Harvey Weinstein types of people. We talk about the fact that we may manage money for the Harvey Weinsteins in the world, but we don't work with them generally. So the bigger challenge is exactly what you said, Jeff, which is that many people operating within the industry say, well, I don't see color. I don't see gender. I only see numbers. And the problem is that we know, A, that that's not true because lots of people get bonuses even when they didn't outperform their benchmark or other, you know, because there's other sources of compensation. And B, if it were true, I believe that the industry would be more diverse, right? Just because more diverse perspectives should lead to better investment results. Now, as it pertains to the question about how to cast that wider net, um, I don't feel like we have a lot of great answers for that. I think it goes back to giving, we, we only talk about women in the book because we are both white. Um, so we certainly have no business talking about any of the other um, categories of people who are chronically underrepresented in our industry, although we feel that some of the themes are, are similar. But making sure that underrepresented demographics have exposure to the industry, to the career path, that we debunk some of those myths early on. So it's not, you don't have to be a quant genius, you know, eighth grade algebra usually will do for a lot of the research that that you can bring don't to Don't tell anybody the secret is that we know algebra. Everybody thinks it's complex <laughs> stochastic calculus. It is algebra, but don't tell anybody, it's okay? Algebra. Yeah. It is. Um, so once you start to tell people, sorry, uh, to let that cat out of the bag and really to introduce people at younger ages to the career path, I think that increases the pool of people who are interested in pursuing the career. Um, and then that has the knock-on effect of you know building out the pipeline. So that's what people always talk about, right? Well, we would hire women or minorities if we could, but there's no pipeline. So we have to start building the pipeline. However, before that, we also, or, or in tandem with that, we talk about this flywheel of the investment management business. We have to make sure that we are adding and keeping women at the mid and senior levels of management at investment management firms. Because guess what? Those early people in the pipeline are going to want to see them. They're going to want to talk to them. They're going to want to see them. They're going to, sorry, I'm just going to say her name. They're going to want to see someone other than Kathy Wood talked about in the press, right? Because if you were a woman considering this career path and all you read about as a role model was, you know, someone who is very high profile in that way and who gets a lot of really negative press, I think that could be very off-putting, right? So we need more women who appear regularly in the financial press. My co-author, Katrina Dudley, does a great job. She's on Bloomberg constantly um, just talking about the markets. Having those types of role models helps steer younger women towards the career path. Then at the actual investment management firms, that's where we get back to the three P's. Analyze your data. Um, one of the fascinating things about promotion, 
I think we put this in the promotion category, but it sort of straddles pay as well. There's data that says that, and you probably know this from your personal experience, the industry coverage given to analysts is skewed by gender. I am a case in point. You know what my first industry was? It was retail. There's a lot more women who cover the retail sector than there are who cover the technology sector, which tends to be very, very male dominated. Now, if you look at the performance of these from a stock perspective, you can guess which one has outperformed over the last, you know, bajillion years. Um, if you are a manager at an investment firm thinking about who to promote to portfolio manager, even if you've got benchmark adjusted um, indices that you're comparing analysts against, the human nature reality of it is you'll see that the male analyst has had these great calls with the FANG stocks. Whereas the female analyst, all she's done is keep you out of JCPenney and Macy's when it's going down and, you know, all these other crappy retail stocks that nobody wanted to own anyway. And nobody ever gives you credit for keeping people out of things or for serving the portfolio manager, the Brussels sprouts of the utility sector, which nobody really wants to talk about, but probably belong in everyone's stock portfolio. Um, so getting clear about those types of differentials that have nothing to do with the person, but have everything to do with you know, the industry can really help make sure that women stay and are promoted at the same rate as men. So with that, I have to jump up. First of all, I've never heard anyone call the utilities the Brussels sprouts. I, I love that, first of all. And by the way, I like Brussels sprouts. So Me I, too. You know, you know, um, but you mentioned the alpha component and avoiding things is an alpha generation process, right? Especially as a bond investor. I mean, a lot of it is avoiding some of those blowups too. But I want to say, I want to jump on one last thing about all these gender roles that we were talking about. And before I, because I really want to get into markets a little bit too, to show that, you know, you, you do have all this expertise in the IO market. I want to, I want to jump, in, jump into that a little bit. But how, you know, in the book you talk about, there's a bunch of organizations and resources out there that can be helpful to women. Uh, to, there are in the industry looking for this promotion or trying to get into there. Uh, are there any favorites you can point out to our listeners so they can go do some research on this and potentially help support some of these organizations as well? Yeah. So again, I, th I think the two that I would really highlight are Rock the Street, Wall Street, which for okay. any of your listeners who work in finance, not just in investment management, but any, any sort of tangential role in finance, go find a local Rock the Street, Wall Street affiliate. Um, they're in, I believe, 20 to 25 cities at this point and volunteer. All you have to do is walk into the classroom. They have a ready pre-made curriculum. Um, it is just great for young women to get exposed to these types of careers at a very early age. Um, girls who invest, uh, I'm not actually sure if they have volunteer opportunities or not. You can certainly donate to it. It's a nonprofit. Um, but then for any of the, you know, if there are any more senior women, watching this, um, my call to arms is please go out and talk whenever you're invited to talk. So make sure that the media is seeing examples of women, um, is covering our industry fairly. Uh, make sure that you, you know, applaud great coverage of our industry as opposed to articles like there was one in the Financial Times and I love the Financial Times, not just because occasionally they publish the stuff that I write. Um, it's a great newspaper. However, they had an actual hedge, uh, uh, headline that said, hedge fund bros gonna bro. This was a couple of years ago. 
So does that make you as a young woman, woman really want to get into the industry? No. And there's a whole lot of ink spilled about some of the bad actors in our industry. So um, every five minutes, there's an article about someone named Crispin Odie. I don't even really know who he is, but he sounds like a really, really unpleasant coworker. Um, so my challenge to people is to make sure that you're reading media that is fair and broad in its coverage of the types of people who work in our industry and that you do a little digging to make sure that you're not just reading the ones that come to the surface who may make for great clickbait, but are not representative of the types of people, I mean, I'd like to say like us. No, I think that's uh, that's great out there. We really wanted to promote some of this today as, as well as your book too. So before I jump into the market, remember uh, Sam held it up earlier, but for those of you listening to the podcast, it's called Undiversified, the Big Gender Short in Investment Management. And um, as, as you said, the, the proceeds, all the profits are being donated as well. So uh, this is not some, uh, you know, try to get rich quick scheme, although I'm sure you're selling lots of copies out there. You're trying to actually help promote the cause by educating folks on this. So before we transition uh, to, the, to Sam's favorite part of the show, I've got to ask you about the credit markets today. And here we sit here on March 15th. Uh, we have a Fed meeting tomorrow. Uh, I hear from, you know, a, a lot of punditry and insiders from the Federal Reserve where they say that Jay Powell is someone who studies the credit markets. And um, I haven't really seen that a lot, you know, where he's worried about liquidity, everything. And so uh, we know that rates have been going up in anticipation of the Fed hiking this year. How are you thinking about that bleeding into the high yield market, the, the sector you cover or the segment of the bond market you cover? And is, you know, what are your thoughts about this path of interest rates, um, the unwinding of QE or the unwinding of the balance sheet a little bit going into quantitative uh, tightening as well? And are you concerned about the ripple effects that potentially QT could have on the high yield market? So not a lot in that question, you know, <laughs> to unpack. So, yeah. So feel free to jump yeah. in wherever you like on that, because I, I really want to pick your brain on this. Yeah, so I want to say this is a little bit off topic, but this has been turning in my head ever since somebody asked me the question in one of my Columbia classes in January. We were talking about all the stimulus that came into the market in early 2020. I'm going to go back a couple of years, even though most of the time we don't have memories in this market. And one of my students raised her hand and said, why do you think there wasn't as much of an uproar from the American people about what effectively were bailouts of, among other things, high yield investors, right? By all these novel types of stimulus as there was back when the banks got bailed out. And, 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 and it stumped me. I did not have a good answer for that. So that sort of sets the stage for- Because Jay Powell used to traffic in that market. He's got friends. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I don't, no, I think it's because nobody knew, right? So our our- industry, and this goes back to some of the things we talked about, is so opaque to the general public that they don't know that a lot of that check writing went directly into, you know, the hands of high yield bond investors who sort of got bailed out of some bad investments. Now, talking about the high yield market specifically, one of the interesting things that's happened year to date has been that if you look at excess returns in our market versus the investment grade corporate market, we're actually holding up pretty well. And in fact, triple C's have been the best performing of the ratings categories in the high yield universe. Now, part of that is duration, right? So triple C's have the shortest duration of any of the ratings categories. However, what that says to me is we have not seen 
anything like a traditional risk-off market. And that makes me you know, even more comfortable being conservatively positioned, which is just my sort of natural um, positioning as an investor. There's some really great things that have happened in the structure of the high yield market since the pandemic. So first of all, we had all these fallen angels come into our market. A fallen angel is a company who gets downgraded from investment grade to high yield. Um, so companies like Ford and Macy's, and I can't even say it without wincing, Oxy, Petroleum. Um, these companies all came into our market. And through the magic of the, the Fed and, and what effectively became bailouts of these fallen angels, because so much life was breathed into risk appetites, these companies are all basically marching back to investment grade. Um, however, there's still parts of our market and you know they still make up a very healthy component of the high yield market. The other thing that happened at the early stage of the pandemic was that it pulled forward a lot of bankruptcies that were just kind of hanging out there, stumbling along, waiting to happen. Great examples of these, Chesapeake, JCPenney, Neiman Marcus. So a lot of companies got torched, um, crystallized their value, unfortunately, at a very bad point, but left our market. And that washout made the high yield market a healthier place with a healthier constituency of companies. If you look at the ratings composition of our market today, it's higher than it's ever been. Now, of course, the problem, among other things, is that ratings are backward looking. But if you just took ratings at their face value, it would say that given the proportion of double Bs in our market, it's a very good place to be relative to history. And by the way, that's really different from investment grade corporates, right? Where triple Bs, I think, are still hovering at close to the highest component of the market that they've ever been. Um, when you play it out, though, I'm not even sure it matters that much. I don't think that anybody knows what's going to happen when the excessive liquidity leaves the system. We know that it will cause risk appetite to go down. Um, we, I don't personally know. It's above my pay grade, Jeff, to say how that's going to affect high yield, other than to say that I think the classic positioning strategy, if you're concerned about valuations, makes sense today. Stay higher in the capital structure own secured versus unsecured paper, stay shorter duration, um, just all the typical thematics that you would think about when you are positioning yourself for another leg down, which which is is my personal investment thesis. Um, and we haven't even talked about a recession yet, right? So right. all the indicators are gathering steam towards recession, you know, even just one triggered solely by oil prices. We've yeah. seen that before. Yeah. I was really young, but we have seen it. <laughs> Yeah, well, the good news is, is oil's retreated a fair amount. We're really almost back to like pre-invasion levels uh, in, in oil prices today. Um, I got, I have one more question then too. So I, I really like the way you distill it down by focus on triple C's because, you know, people say, oh, high yield soft, everything's in, in trouble. Um, but this doesn't look like it's a significant increase in risk premium due to default or this recession at this point. Yes. The yield curve is kind of indicating, you know, that the recession probability is increasing. We all know that, um, you know, the, the Fed is going to, to hike significantly this year is likely. But, you know, when we look inside of the credit, I hear this from our credit teams. I hear it from Monica on the IG side. The quality is good. And so it's a function of more rates and a repricing of just the price of money more than anything else. And so you brought up the R word. I'm seeing a lot more of articles focus on that. How are you thinking about a recession? Um, I know how you position your portfolio, but how are you thinking about this stage in the cycle? And you know, do you think that 
the Fed can actually engineer the soft landing? Um, I can't answer the second part of the question. Don't know. Hard to say. In terms of a recession, you know, the, the standard philosophy would be to um, make sure that you reposition into defensive sectors. Um, so this would be like hospitals, care, huge and high yields. Um, what's interesting is that during the pandemic, we found that those weren't exactly as defensive as we thought, right? Because when it, you cut off elective surgeries, they basically are bleeding cash. But leaving that aside, they made it through the pandemic. Um, so that would be the standard playbook here. And I don't think there's a lot different this time. I, I think one of the really interesting structural changes that happened, um, if you look at a company like Macy's, which I've followed since, you know, before the May Federated merger, when it used to be called Federated. So that was a long time ago. And it has not only survived the pandemic, despite the fact that all of its stores were closed for some period of time, and there was a real diminution in consumer interest in their higher margin items like suits and you know workplace apparel. Um, it has come through it a stronger company because the pandemic forced Macy's to get really sharp on their digital strategies. Not that they didn't have a digital strategy before. They did, and it was very good. But all of a sudden, they went from being a brick and mortar company with you know a tiny little digital component to, to almost a 50-50 blend. It's not 50-50, but it's, it's you know getting there. And I think that there's a lot of other companies that managed to reinvent themselves by, by default, no pun intended, during the, uh, during the pandemic that are actually in a better position with respect to their cost structures as we enter into what could look like, um, you know, a nasty recession or even a mild recession, than you would have thought even before the pandemic. So I guess what I'm saying is the cost cutting, especially in the high yield market, because these are companies that didn't have a lot of, you know, fat to cut to begin with, but how much they managed to whittle down their cost structures in response to the pandemic, they're in a really great place, I think, to operate through a recession relative to what you would have said maybe three years ago. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense too. And, um, you know, th there is really a lot to uh, really focus on there. But unfortunately, Alan, we're running out of time. And so the thing about this is, is that we have a time limit and Sam has a favorite part of the show. And so we've got to get to Sam's favorite part of the show because he's holding up the book again. And we want to give one more plug for the book, Undiversified. Right, the big gender short in investment management. So, Sam, why don't you introduce Ellen to our favorite, your favorite part of the show? <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite you. part of the I'm show. Scared. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite part of the show because I'm rarely the uh, recipient. Uh, I'm the rece receiving end of this, but uh, it's called Sherman says. It's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Jeff. Uh, each one will be unique, to which I hope to get a top of mind, somewhat concise answer. And I'll start out with Sherman first to, to give you an example with soft landing. Um, infinitesimal probability. <laughs> all right. This one is for you, Ellen. Kill all your darlings. Oh, Faulkner. Or was it Hemingway? I don't know. Yes. Faulkner, Faulkner, yeah. Oh, yeah, I guess it could be Hemingway, though, too, right? And known for his uh, being concise to the point and uh, yeah, keeping it real. Like, or not keeping it real, but uh, straight to the point. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, unlike your response there, you should have said concise, but you kept lingering. I kept going, right? <laughs> I kept going. But uh, there's a piece in your in uh, in the book where it just it, it was it was perfect. It was perfect. So back to Sherman. Fed Fed uh, independence exists. All right, uh, back to Ellen with safe haven asset for 2022. Treasury bonds. Globalization. Long, long, long bonds, right? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think I think we're I think we've overpriced in some cases, but yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Back to you, Sharon, with uh, globalization. Um, it's trending away from. All right. Stagflation. Maybe. Nickel. I hate nickel right now. Uh, you know, it's been a thorn in our side. Um, let's trade in America. I I don't like the London Metals Exchange. CME, if you're listening to this podcast, start looking, listing nickel contracts, limit them up and down, and don't close the market for six days. Uh, do I sound frustrated? Because I am, yes. <laughs> it's opening tomorrow, though. It's back in action. Supposedly. So everybody get up at 8 a.m. Uh, London time to watch the five minutes of ring trading tomorrow to see if we can figure this out. Yeah. So my next if you one... want to know more about Nickel, listen to Sam's <laughs> other podcast where they complained about it last Friday with him and Jeff Mayberry. Yeah, we uh, we try to keep it uh, low key. Yeah. But uh, the next one for you, Ellen, was BroVest, but you already brought that up. So let me think of a new one here. Um, Heels, flats, sneakers, all of the above, or, or do you have a favor for this? Oh, come on. I live in Asheville, North Carolina. Sneakers, and when I get super fancy, uh, boots. <laughs> all right. Ah, nice. And then uh, let's see, the Dr. Sherman with favorite wine. Chateau Margot. Love the region. Stay away from the Bordeaux, but the Margots. Doesn't have to be the Chateau Margot, but that region is uh, on the list these days. All right. And then to wrap it all up, Ellen, with craft beer. Um, so many. Highland Brewing. It's one of our local breweries. We have a lot. Y'all should come visit. All right. Yeah. Uh, Mayberry. Yeah, yeah. We we actually went to Mr. Mayberry's wedding there. Is one of the other podcasts he does, so they had it there. So we did do some tours around there. I don't remember all of them. He's gonna kill me for not remembering them, but um it was a beautiful place and I, I see why you want to live there. Yeah. Yeah. If uh, so, if I had gotten wine, by the way, my answer would have or favorite wine, my answer would have been beer. <laughs> so I don't I know there's a champagne of beers, but is there a wine of beers? Yeah. Okay. Just All right. Yeah. So, Ellen, um, where can people um, get access to the information? They can get content from you. Obviously, the books available out there. We got it from Amazon. But where uh, where can people get access to Ellen Carr? Uh, I'm only on LinkedIn. I'm basically in the Stone Ages when it comes to social media. But find me on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, you can hammer in that tablet, etch it out, and send her a message. So, Ellen, we really enjoy it. Thank you for uh, joining us today, and thank you for putting out a, a book like this and just educating people and just the cause you're doing here. Just 
to get the underrepresented represented, I think is a very important cause. And so we can all do more, we can all be better. And so I appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. It was great meeting both of you. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of The Sherman Show. Uh, we have uh, another one coming soon. You can find all of these Sherman shows on our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com backslash double line capital. That's double line capital, all one word. Uh, you can also find us on the Twitter. Uh, the Twitter handle is at Sherman Show Pod. Uh, and you can also catch these on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Google Podcasts, some other podcast app. You can even go to the website, doubleline.com, and find our podcasts on there as well. And also, thanks, everybody, for welcoming Sam back to the podcast. Uh, all, of your, uh, all of your responses really encourage him to come back and the fandom he really has here. So thanks again, and tune in soon for the next episode. represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2021 DoubleLine Capital.